to Matthew 5. So if you've got a Bible, Matthew 5 is where we're going to start. And to say we're going to be in it for the next 15 months means we're going to take a deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, For anyone that's been part of our church for any length of time, you know we started a series on Joshua uh, earlier this year. I really feel that, that God spoke that and we started speaking, but I've also felt God say, don't cross over cross over there's some stuff this side of the water that we need to do and be prepared for before we step in to that which he's promising and I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of those things that I've been wanting to preach for probably four or five years and just not felt God say now's the time to preach it but as as we've been praying as elders we really feel that this is what God is inviting us into uh, to explore as we as we look to find out what it means for us to follow Jesus because that's what we're about Jesus called us to make disciples. We can get busy doing a great service and not actually make disciples. But he calls us to make disciples. And so for anyone that's part of our church here, that is what we're about. We're about making disciples. And the Sermon on the Mount is, um, there's nothing like the Sermon on the Mount to start showing us a little bit about what it means to be apprenticeship, apprenticeship to Jesus, following Jesus, giving our life to him and letting him work in and through us as we seek to live. Does that sound exciting? You know, if you give me feedback, I preach for less time, so look excited, be excited, even if you're faking it, we'll be gone in 10 minutes, is that all right? I thought that'd get you excited. (laughs) So Matthew 5, what we've got in Matthew 5 to 7 is the largest teaching section of Jesus anywhere in the scriptures. Some people think it's bits of teaching that the writers put together. I'm not convinced by that. I think it's one solid piece of teaching that Jesus is bringing, Um, and, and really it's, it's, no, I'm not going to go in there because we haven't got time. So let me just say that um, this, is, this is not just an intellectual ascent about who God is. We can love to come to church and learn something new about God and go home thinking, never knew that before, isn't that great? That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It is deeply practical. It causes to look at how we live, as those of us in the room today that follow Jesus, to look at how we live and respond to who he is. That's the Sermon on the Mount. So let me start. Matthew 5, uh, chapter one, uh, Matthew 5, verse 1, it says, When he saw the crowds, imagine the crowds. Maybe you're in the crowd. Maybe you're part of the crowd. In that crowd, just like this crowd, there would have been the old, the young, the male, the female. In the, the era that we're looking at, there would have been Jew and non-Jew. There would have been rich and poor, slave and free. We like to see the world in categories, don't we? We, we look at people and we kind of automatically categorize people. You're someone I can get on with. You're someone I probably won't get on with. You're someone who will help me climb the social ladder. You're going to make me cause to go down the social ladder, if we're being honest. There's those that we think are in and those that we think are out. The Sermon on the Mount will completely redefine the categories that we look at around the world, that we look at around society, that we look at in our own lives. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Sermon on the Mount. This sermon from Jesus will change your perspective on how you see the world. It completely redefines how we look at the world around us. It says, when he uh, he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. There is an invitation through this Sermon on the Mount to get closer to Jesus. There's the crowds. And then those disciples came to him. There's an invitation to draw closer to Jesus through this sermon that Jesus gives. And it does change how we live. Those disciples that came to him, their lives were changed and transformed. 
They live for something completely different than they did before they came to him. They serve Jesus. It starts to change how we live. There was a man called Powers Hapgood. We might have a picture of him. Powers Hapgood, there he is. So he lived at like the end of the, of the 19th century, right through to the middle of the 20th century. And he was wealthy. Powers Hapgood was a wealthy man. He inherited a factory from his family. Uh, he was Harvard educated in America. So he, he had the influence, he had the education, he had the money. But he decided with the inheritance that he got from his father, uh, which was a factory, he decided to give it to the people, give it to the workers. Just after World War II, he was arrested for protesting for the poor. When he was on trial, the judge looked at him and said, Mr. Hapgood, you are Harvard educated, you have influence and money, why would any one of your advantages choose to live the way you do? He looks at the judge and he simply said, because of the Sermon on the Mount, sir, the Sermon on the Mount changes how we live. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he'd sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Father God, as we start this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we we come as we are. We can't come in any other way. We can't pretend we're something we're not because you see through it. We can't be anything other than we are. So we come humbly as we are right now. And for those that are willing, we just, our hearts right now, we just open them to you. Will you come by your spirit? Affirm and confirm who we are because of who you are. And through this season in the life of our church, will you help us to draw closer to you? to be nearer to you, to be with you and become like you. And dare we even believe to say we might do some of the things that you did. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you love it when uh, the Spirit starts to move in a service because it kind of mucks up the flow of things. Um, and my first illustration is from uh, some, something that happened back in 2004 in the Ukraine. And we were going to have an interview with Victor and his family this morning, but just because of time, we don't want to cram that in. Uh, Victor and his family fled Ukraine uh, earlier this year, and so we're going to make sure we make time for that in our next service when we're together, just to hear his story, hear from his family, and how we can be praying for them. But anyway, I'm going to carry on with my illustration from 2004 in the Ukraine, because it's, I think it's one that helps us understand this Sermon on the Mount. But um, there was a protest in the Ukraine in 2004. And uh, it was called the Orange Revolution. And it happened because the people were objecting about the election, saying that they had been rigged. There were two people running for election. The current president, who I'm going to pronounce, but Victor, you can help me, Yankovic? That one. His name was Victor. Everyone's name is, is Victor like John in Ukraine? Is everyone called Victor? Exactly, it was. So there were two people called Victor, so it's not helpful if I say one was called Victor, because they both were called Victor. One was Victor Yankovic, that one. And then there was the other one, that one. Now, that one, the second one, was like the people's choice, wasn't he? He was the one that the people wanted. He wasn't the current president, but he was the one that the people were supporting. The other guy, Victor... (laughs) He was, he was the current president, and that's the one that, I mean, we can say this, and people will understand, Russia, Belarus, all those nations were really for him being the, remaining the president. And on the day of the announcement of the presidential election in 2004, some of the major TV stations, they were on strike 
because the people were saying that they were under pressure to report the news the way that they were even saying the president's office were writing the news they weren't able to actually report it and so what happened on that morning is um, the one that was currently president Victor as opposed to the Victor that everybody wanted to become president it's very confusing isn't it I can't even call them Victor Y because the other one's Victor Y as well <laughs> Victor One, who was the current president, he went onto the TV station and started to announce that he was the president. But it wasn't true. And what they didn't realize was that morning, there was a lady called Natalie Dimitruk who went to work, and she went to work as a sign language interpreter for her TV station that she worked for. And she knew that she had to stand up for the truth. And so her and her makeup artist conspired to be able to tell people the truth. And so what she did was she tied an orange ribbon around her wrist. It was the color of Victor II's campaign and his party. And she decided that when the news broadcasts were going on, she would start to sign the truth. No one in the studio could understand what she was doing. And only the deaf community out in the world could understand what she was saying. And so as the news report is going out, and Victor I is announcing his... His, uh, his winning of the election, she starts to sign to the deaf community that could understand her. Yushchenko is our true president. Everything you hear today on the news is a total lie. And she's signing this. She went on and said, you will probably never see or hear from me again. The news started to spread among the deaf community. It started to spread further and further afield. People started to hear what was happening. Other people that worked for other news TV channels started to join the strikes, and it became a mass protest in 2004 called the Orange Revolution. And what actually happened was by that evening, TV stations started to declare that they weren't going to be censored and they would report the truth of the news. And the good news is that Mr. Matruk did go back to work the next day. She was seen. And this is a picture of her signing in that moment. As the announcement goes out, that the guy at the top has apparently won the election. She's signing, I don't know if you can see, it's a bit of a distorted picture, but she's got an orange wristband there. Do you know, I saw this picture, and I thought the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know why? Because you've got the big screen. You've got the big screen that everybody's really watching. That's the news that everyone's going to believe, that the majority of people buy into, that's what's being told. But then there's a little screen that goes mainly unnoticed by the majority of people but it's telling the truth most people ignore it most people don't even notice it in fact for some people i don't know if you've ever watched it i'm being honest, sometimes it can be a bit annoying because it gets in the way of what's on the tv screen the person signing so it can even be annoying but it's the thing that's telling the truth you see there's a big screen that the majority of people will buy into. And I'm not saying it's just the media. I'm not bashing the media. I don't know enough about media corporations. I studied media studies at A-level, and that is the limit of my knowledge about it. I know there will be Christians in the media, in most media outlets that are trying to live for truth. So this isn't a bashing of the big screen media. Isn't it evil? But our society tells a story. It tells a narrative. It says, this is what it looks like to be blessed. This is what life looks like when you're winning. This is what it means to be successful. And we see it in social media. We see it on TV shows. We see it, we see it in culture. Dare I even say, this might upset some of you, but we see it in Christian culture. We see it in Christian culture that says, when you're successful, this is what life looks like. When God's blessing you, this is what life looks like. 
Let's not bash culture. It's a big screen, and it's the news that most people are listening to, but there is a smaller screen that some people can see, and some people start to take notice of. And it's saying something quite different. It's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's a different story. We're going to spend the next eight weeks just looking at the Beatitudes, these statements of blessing that Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to just look at blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is theirs. The kingdom of heaven, as Matthew would say uh, to a primarily Jewish audience, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's a small screen that I want to dare that we even glance at and look at over this next season. Before we do, I just want to bring some clarity on what the Beatitudes are and are not, because I think there's a lot of confusion about these little statements from Jesus. Beatitudes, it's Latin, uh, it mainly gets translated blessed, um, but it means a state of being blessed. Um, for, for, for Matthew, they, they appear in this form, they also appear in Luke slightly differently, but the thing about these, these blessings that Jesus speaks out is they are completely countercultural. You will read them and go, I'm not sure that's true. And because of that, they're so often misunderstood. See, I've heard these lists, this list of Beatitudes, taught as a list of virtues. In other words, like moral character that you've just got to get into your life because then you'll get more of God. And so we, we, we create them into a virtue. We create them into some kind of standard of living. Like a, I've even heard some people teach them like a stepladder. Like the further you go down, the more like Jesus you're, you're becoming, and so therefore the more blessed you are. So each one of these causes us to be more holy and become the ideal Christian. And so what has to happen then, if that's how we read them, is that we have to make everything into a virtue. So when it says, blessed are those that are mourn, mourning is not really a virtue, is it? It's kind of like being sad. That's not good. Okay, so how do, how do we make that into a virtue? Okay, so we have to mourn our sin. That's what we've got to do. For that, for, that, for that beatitude to apply, we have to be the ones that mourn our sin. Not saying that we shouldn't do that. Not saying that sin is good and we should celebrate it. Absolutely. And, and some, if you hold to that and that's what you believe, then you may be right. But my issue with it is, that's not what Jesus says. He just says, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He doesn't say those that blessed that mourn over their sin, because they will be comforted. You have to add something into the text in order to come to that conclusion. Because that's not what Jesus says. He says, blessed are those that mourn, blessed are those that are poor in Luke. And then he adds in, in, Matthew adds in here, blessed are the poor in spirit. Being poor is not a virtue. If you spend any time around the poor, it is not a virtue. Is desperate. Jesus does not want us to be poor. He's not saying if you can just be poor, then you'll get the life that I promise you. Brendan Manning, one of my favorite writers, he says this of this beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, was never intended to moralize or to threaten. Detach yourself from money, materiality, and all creature comforts or else. Nor was the first beatitude meant to be a simple promise of compensation such as any itinerant preacher could have made. Live like the poor and you'll get to heaven. On the contrary, the beatitude is a glad tiding. The great good news that the messianic era has erupted into history. The proclamation that the long-awaited day of salvation has finally arrived. Got any Pentecostals just want to say amen? These are not a list of virtues. Some of them are virtues but it's not a list of virtues that you have to work your way through to become somebody. They're not a list of right behaviors. Jesus is not saying, if you're willing to be persecuted, then you'll get the kingdom of heaven. If, I'm sorry, if you're not willing to be persecuted, you can't get the kingdom of heaven. 
That's not what Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes. They're not a list of virtues. They're not a list of right behaviors. And dare I say, they're not a list of timeless truths. The meek do not always inherit the earth. Now, you might want to talk eternally, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But as I see it, the rich, the powerful, the liars, the cheats, they're the ones that generally have all the power. They're the ones that seem to inherit the earth when I look at it. I wonder if the 900 Nigerian Christians that died for their faith in the first three months of 2020, whether they thought they received mercy when they pleaded for their lives, a non-violent faith, simply standing up for Jesus, trying to tell people that he loves them, and they get killed for it. See, if we're not careful, we can conclude that with right virtues and right behaviors, we'll get these timeless truths. And then we're the true followers of Jesus. We're the Marines of the Christian world. Yeah, we've got it. And the rest of us, we just have to accept that clearly that's not going to be us. This isn't what these blessings are about, I don't believe. And if we start in the wrong place, we will end up journeying down a road in the wrong direction. So what are the Beatitudes? If they're not a list of virtues, if they're not a list of right behaviors, if they're not a list of timeless truths, what are these lists? What is this blessing that Jesus speaks about? Two things. It's the gospel. These lists of blessings is the gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That is the gospel. It's the good news. See, there's two words that, uh, the, in the Greek for poor. Penace is one of them. And that means the working poor. Those that live from paycheck to paycheck. You can survive you're living, but you need the next bit of money to be able to continue surviving. The working poor. That's not the word that Jesus uses when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He uses the word paktos. It means those in complete abject poverty. Those who are living hand to mouth. And as we said in Matthew, if you read it in Luke, it ends there. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those that have absolutely nothing and are struggling even to survive. And in Matthew, we see blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what Dallas Willard and others would call the spiritual zeros. The spiritually bankrupt, the deprived, the deficient, those who have absolutely nothing to offer God spiritually and nothing to offer anybody else materially. They have no, no virtue to offer God and no valuables to give to anybody else. They're blessed when the kingdom of God comes upon them. Those who have zero value are beneficiaries in the kingdom of God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. You are poor. You're a nobody. You're of little account by the world's standards. You are blessed, Jesus says. It is my Father's good pleasure to give you pr a privileged place in the kingdom of God. Not because you work so hard. Not because you're saying all the right things. Not because you're doing all the right things and becoming all the right things. But because my Father wants you. That's the gospel the gospel where Jesus came and lived a life as God intended humanity to live it without sin taking on on that cross taking all of the sin and the error and the wrong that we have done that separates us from God and he doesn't just stay there he died and he went to a grave and he took that sin for those that trust and believe in him he took that sin to the grave but we know the gospel isn't that Jesus is dead in a grave but three days later that he rose again and we get to live into the new creation that is both in us and being formed in us 
because our sin is dead in the grave because our life is now hidden with Christ. That's the gospel. And if you're willing to believe and receive, you can't earn it. You can't write behavior your way into it. You can't convince everybody, I am really poor in spirit. At the end of John's gospel, it says that everything was written so we would believe in Jesus, and by believing in Jesus, you will receive the real and eternal life that is only his to offer. It comes through believing and receiving. There is no way of earning it. Do you know, this season for me has been more about receiving what God can give more than anything I could ever do to earn it. And some of you will know the journey that I've been on over the last few months to some degree. But I know now more than ever how poor in spirit I am. And I don't say that in some kind of false humility. I say that as absolute reality. I feel weaker now than I ever have done. And we think weakness is bad. I feel closer to God now than I've ever felt. I can feel something of God's kingdom that I've never experienced before. God's grace. I'm increasingly seeing my poverty of spirit. Because if I'm being honest, can I be honest? Are we allowed to be honest in church? I know it's risky, but I used to think I was quite good for God. I used to think I had some stuff to give God. Grown up in church all my life, can play guitar, can sing a bit, done some youth work. I can do some stuff for God. I stand here now and I go, I can do nothing for you, God. I can do nothing for you, God. I need you more than I've ever needed you. But for me, through that, there's come a blessing. A way that I've experienced him through my family, through the elders of this church, through Elim. I've been able to give less in this season than I've ever given in my whole life. To the people of God, to God himself, to, to church, whatever you want to call it. I've been able to give less. But I've received so much more from God. I know now I cannot give what I don't have. But God's love has remained. And it's not come through spiritual highs of blessing. It's come through complete brokenness. And dependency on him. In my lack, we encounter his abundance. Are we ready for the kingdom of God to come through the poor in spirit? Not the presentable in spirit. Not those that have it all together. Not those that are convinced that God can't do it without them. But the ones that we write off as the least. Are we ready for the kingdom of God to come through them? Those who admit that we've got some dysfunctional actions and dysfunctional behaviors and places we run to for safety and security that are not Jesus. Are we willing to admit that the kingdom of God is coming to them? Some of you get what I'm saying. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak of the world to bring down the powerful. It's 1 Corinthians. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I've rewritten it. My own words, this isn't, this isn't Bible, this isn't me adding to the Bible, this is just me having some creative fun this week. Rewriting this, this beatitude for me. 
Blessed are the down and out, the unemployed, those on the wrong side of the tax cuts, those without the right education or the right postcode, those who run back to negative thought patterns and actions and behaviors and have nothing of benefit to anyone and who are spiritually simple and have absolutely nothing to offer Jesus. They're in God's kingdom. That's the gospel. And it's the start of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount will go in to speak so practically about so much about how we live. But before all of that, how we get to live, comes the gospel. You have to start with the gospel. You've got to start with the person of Jesus. Do you believe who he said he is and what he has done? Do you accept it? Do you receive it? Do you believe it? That is where it has to start. These Beatitudes are the gospel. Second point, and this is my final point, so we're going to be going home soon. (laughs) The Beatitudes radically redefine what it means to be blessed. And some of you have been in church and you've heard those things said about these Beatitudes. You've actually go, yeah, 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 we know that. No, 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 we don't. They radically redefine what it means to be blessed. In the cultural eyes, in society's eyes, in church eyes, it flips the whole thing on its head. I, um, I searched the hashtag blessed on Instagram this week. In fact, I was watching TV last night and the DFS advert, apparently if you've got a DFS sofa, well done, you're hashtag blessed. It came up on their advert last night. <laughs> But you will find more than 100 million posts when you put in hashtag blessed. You will find pictures of beautiful places, toned bodies, new babies, graduation, success, and abundance. If you scroll down, you will see full churches, successful businesses, wonderful technologies, new marriages, fancy cars. Hashtag blessed. All of these are really good things. They're good gifts from a good God. But that hashtag seems to suggest that blessing means abundance, it means power, it means popularity, and it means success. It's the big screen. Imagine a post on social media that said there's this mother whose child is living with a myriad of birth-related problems. And her most recent status talks about physical suffering, learning disabilities, and the independent of her life, her child will never, ever get to live. Hashtag cursed. The Beatitudes radically redefine what it means to be blessed. In fact, the word that Jesus uses in the, in the Greek translation of the New Testament was the Greek word makarios. Makarios is a, a, a fascinating word because most translations will translate it blessed or happy. I think both of those fall really short of what that word means. Because blessed, I don't know, I've been around church, like I'm 38 and I've been around church 39 years. You know, since before I was born, I've been in church and I know what we mean when we say blessed. <laughs> we don't like the word lucky because lucky is like a worldly thing. But when everything's going well, we're not lucky. Well, actually, if you read the King James Version of the Bible, uh, it says David in the Psalms says, I'm a lucky man to be in the kingdom. Just throwing that out there. Um, (laughs) But we can't say the word lucky because it's worldly, so we'll forget that. We'll say blessed. It's going well. God's good. I'm blessed. So we just use it as a synonym for lucky. And happy. Happy is like this temporary emotion, isn't it? That we long for but never really seem to grasp and get. And it's based on externals. I think both blessed and happy fall short of makarios, which means you can throw a party, you can celebrate, you need to know that you are truly well off. 
For those whom everything is good, makarios are the poor in spirit. They're truly well off because, this is the small screen speaking a completely different message. It is counter-cultural. It's counter-Christian culture. It's counter to everything that we understand. It's counter to the culture that Jesus was speaking into at the time mainly Jewish audience that he would have been speaking to, they'd have known lists of blessing like this. They had some of their own writings that they, they read and they, they understood. And there's, there's something I found this week in Surak 25, which is a Jewish writing that the people would have known of. Rabbis would have taught on it. This is the blessing in Surak 25. It says, I can think of nine whom I call blessed and the tenth my tongue proclaims. This isn't in the Bible, by the way. It's not in our Bible anyway that we believe is the word of God. It says, a man. So firstly, you have to be male. Women in the room, sorry, by definition, you can't be blessed. All right, so you have to be a man who can rejoice in his children. So you have to be male, you have to have kids, and they have to be well-behaved. <laughs> Hashtag, no, no. <laughs> a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. You have to be a winner. You have to be the best. That's what it means to be blessed. Happy is the one who lives with a sensible wife. <laughs> what? I've not said anything. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> not, I'm not saying a word. <laughs> I didn't say anything, and I'm already, I can see the daggers of judgment already. Happy is the one who lives with a sensible wife, the one who does not plough his uh, with an ox or an ass together. I mean, the very definition of a curse is I've got an ox and an ass, I've got to plough with them together. I mean, what's that about? Well, that, what that means is that you've got a successful business. It's going well for you. Happy is the one who does not sin with his tongue. You've got to be well-spoken. The one, who's not just, the one who does not serve an inferior. That means you've got a good boss who understands rights and you've got some rights as a worker. And he respects you. Happy is the one who finds a friend. You can't be on your own and you can't be lonely. And the one who speaks to attentive listeners. That's the one every pastor would like to <laughs> claim as a blessing. But when you speak, everybody listens because they know how wise you are. Sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds like a blessed life. If somebody offered me that, I'd go, yes, please. Sounds great. But the trouble is, it's not Jesus' list. And we can look at the list from Jesus, blessed are the poor, the oppressed, when you've not got it all together, congratulations, Makarios, you don't know how well off you are, have a party, let's celebrate, and we go, what, wait, hang on, what? Makes absolutely no sense, and I'm with you. Makes absolutely no sense if it isn't for one thing, and the one thing is the kingdom of God. If it's not for the kingdom of God, this list of Beatitudes makes absolutely no sense. Ian spoke a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, the build-up for the verses that built up to this, uh, these Beatitudes and this Sermon on the Mount. And, and he says, uh, he taught about it, and he says that Jesus was teaching and preaching the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. That through Jesus, God's kingdom has come, and that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And where, God, where God's kingdom comes, Jesus rules, and he reigns, and he's over all things. And that one day Jesus will return, and he will make all things new. And God's kingdom will fully come on earth as it is in heaven. But what we know right now is that God's kingdom has come in Jesus as he walked on this earth. His kingdom came, he proclaimed that, but it hasn't come fully. There's a tension, isn't there? 
Because you can look around and you can see there's brokenness, there's the poor. In fact, the poor hear these words from Jesus when he says, blessed are the poor, and they leave and they're still poor. And the persecuted, blessed are those that are persecuted. And they walk away and they're still persecuted by Rome. So there's this tension within the kingdom of God. And it's what scholars and, and theologians call the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And we've got to grasp this. We've got to get this as, people, as God's people. That God's kingdom is both now and not yet. And it's a tension. It's what some call the unfinished symphony. And we have to understand that God's kingdom is a present reality. We see it break into the here and now. But it's also a future hope when one day it will fully come. The, the Beatitudes actually speak into this tension. If you notice, there's eight Beatitudes. And you notice the first and the last. So it's verse 3, for those of you who got the verses in front of you, verse 3 and verse 10. Verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. Do you notice? Present. Theirs is. Speaking in the present tense. The middle six, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There's a present and a future reality that's wrapped up. It's the kingdom of God wrapped up in these Beatitudes. It's now and not yet, which means we experience life as it was before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, where there is brokenness, where there is pain, where there is sickness. But we see, we see the life and the kingdom of God break into the here and now. Some of you have seen it, haven't you? Some of you experienced it this morning as God's kingdom comes upon you. And we who are part of God's people, we get to live in that tension. And it is a joy. Because we get to see God's kingdom start breaking in in brokenness. And it's our job to look for the little screen. It's our job to say, there's the big screen that everyone's believing, but there's another thing happening here. And we get to usher it and, and call it out and start to see it grow and God's kingdom stir. And it gets really exciting as we start to see God's kingdom break in. It's a present reality and a future hope. In the world as it is, these lists of beatitudes may not always be experienced. But it's starting to break in. It's starting to be seen and we get glimpses, we get echoes of that which is to come. And I want to encourage you, if you follow Jesus in the room, start to look out for it. In the places that you've written off, because I hate my job, and I wish I'd never worked there, start to see God's kingdom breaking out, because it is. And you get to, to, to breathe, breathe the Spirit of God onto it. We get to step into the story. We get to spot the moments where God's kingdom is breaking into the here and now, and make that future hope a present reality. And we get to live blessed even when now seems so overwhelming compared to the not yet. Because there's a smaller screen that we're watching. See, those mentioned in the Beatitudes are not blessed because they live a certain way or under certain conditions. They're blessed because of who Jesus is. And we're blessed because of who Jesus is. They have a hope because the kingdom of God has been made available to them. People are not blessed because they're poor in spirit. The point is they're not excluded because they're poor in spirit. Some of you this morning, you need to know that you've not been excluded. So I'm going to end here. 
and I'm going to encourage every single person that preaches in this series to try and end with something really practical. The reason I'm doing that is because Jesus ends with something really practical. He says, those who hear my words and put them into practice. I preached that message on the Sunday before we went into lockdown. We put things into practice. Do you know what? Coming to church and hearing a sermon is not just about our thinking changing. And you go, but John, it says in in, in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yes, but mind in the biblical understanding of mind is is, is the center of your being, your heart, who you are, the very essence of who you are. Be transformed. And if you don't carry on reading Romans 12, it says be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then realize that underneath it says a load of stuff about how you live, you won't think that actually we need to practically do something. I can just sit back receive some new knowledge, and I will start to be transformed. No. We need to put into practice. We need to start to physically do something with what God is doing in us. It's not good enough to understand the new truth. Jesus says, not me, Jesus says, put it into practice. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Maybe this morning you look at that beatitude or any one of the others that we're going to explore, and you can see yourself in them. And you go, yeah, that that sums up my life. Maybe it's blessed are the poor in spirit, as I've described what Jesus meant by that, the spiritual zeros who have nothing of virtue to offer God and nothing of value to offer the world. Maybe you go, yeah, that's the story of my life. What can you do to put into practice that which Jesus is saying? For the sake of time, I'm just going to miss some stuff out. What can you do? As a church, we're living into a rhythm of life. And we're going to explain more of this at our our, um, Vision Sunday on the evening of the 30th, 6 o'clock if you can be there. But very quickly, let me explain. We're living into a rhythm because we think we need a tangible, practical way to express what God is doing in and through us, a framework for discipleship, that it's not just something up there that we go, I hope we're doing something good for Jesus and we're becoming more like him. But actually, we've got a framework and it's four directions, up, in, out, and down. And some of you that have been journeying with us for a while, you'll know we've been exploring this and God's been revealing little things as we go along. Some of you want it all revealed in one go. And I said right at the start, we are explorers, not experts. We're not following a roadmap of some other church that says this is how you do it. We're seeking God. And four directions, the worshiping life, the discipleship life, the missional life, and the resting life. And within each of those, we've got two values. Two values about what it means to bed these things in the reality of our life. For the up, it's prayer and creativity. For in, it's learning and community. For out, it's gospel and hospitality. And for down, it's Sabbath and celebration. We're going to unpack those, and we are so doing so through our gospel communities. But which one of those values could lead you to do something practical? If you're, if you're going, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is me, then what could you do? Maybe you need to take a scripture like I have for the last four months. In Ecclesiastes, I am my beloved and he is mine. That is the only prayer that I've been able to pray for the last four months. And it's been prayer. I've just been praying it. Not been able to pray any other words. I am my beloved and he is mine. Maybe it's the value of prayer. And you go, you know what? I, I, that, I, that's all I can manage. You need to get that scripture and you just need to pray it. Or you've got something, you just need to be praying with God. Spending time with him and praying. Maybe that's the value you can lean into. Maybe you look at it and you go, actually, I, I've got to be honest. I'm not poor in spirit. I've got some stuff to offer God. And it's not that I'm proud. It's just the reality. And I've got some stuff that I can offer the world. Then can I tell you, praise God. Don't feel guilty about that. It's probably quite a rare thing. Be encouraged. What value? Maybe hospitality. Maybe you go, do you know what? I can look at the spiritual zeros around me and I can, I can invest in them. I can host them. I, those that 
that I feel need to hear my voice of the kingdom of God. Maybe I stop and I listen. Those spiritual zeros that are, are going to actually cause me to come down a little bit socially, spiritually, because I don't agree with them. And maybe hosting them for a meal might feel like I'm agreeing with them, and that's, that's hard. So some of the stuff we're pressing into is what it means to become disciples of Jesus. And we're going to do it by putting some stuff into practice. As a church, I'm done. Hopefully God has spoken through some of that rambling this morning um, and, 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 and he, his spirit has spoken into your heart. I just make the suggestions. You guys decide what you want to do with it. We're forming gospel communities and through that we're going to see the spirit of God move and the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm really excited about the adventure. And so I'm going to finish. I'm going to ask, can the, the guys from our gospel community, some of the guys from our gospel community are going to come up and lead us in communion. We're going to finish in about 10 minutes and we're going to take communion. Yeah, if you can get the kids, that'd be great. Um, so we're going to just uh, go into a time of communion but I just want to pray over us as a church is that okay? you can say no but I'm going to do it anyway because we have um, as elders uh, three of four of us uh, at the start of the year started meeting every morning to pray on Zoom and uh, we, we kind of thought oh, let's do it for a week and let's see what happens and it just kept going and going and going and we started inviting some others and we're now inviting those that are in our gospel communities to join with us and it spreads to now every morning Monday to Friday we pray from 6.30 for 15 minutes and we pray at 10 o'clock for 15 minutes on Zoom. We don't have our cameras on because we, we respect the fact that, that um, we don't look blessed at that time in the morning um, <laughs> in the traditional sense of the word. Um, but we pray every single morning and every single evening. We've got people in our church praying. I love to be part of a move of God in prayer. And this is the prayer that we're praying every single morning. So let me just pray this over us. Every morning, Monday to Friday, since January, we've been praying this over ourselves, over the church. We're going to pray this and then we're going to go into communion. Father God, will you close your eyes? Father God, whose grace is enough for us, may we live this day bearing your image well into all creation. Jesus, who invites us to abide, may we walk slowly enough so not to miss you as we step into your story for the sake of those we encounter. Holy Spirit, whose power is at work within us, restore our imaginations to perceive fresh possibilities in the ordinary things of this day. May your kingdom come. Amen.